Hebrews chapter 4, are you there? Amen. We're going to go to verse number 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14. Thank you, Lord. I just taught the other night from a portion of this uh, when I was talking to you about on Wednesday night about praying the word. But uh, I'm, I'm going to go a little different direction, but I want to touch on this if I could tonight. Hebrews 4 and 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Everybody shout that, a high priest. That is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. I preached that to you this morning. I don't like people changing professions. I don't, I don't like that. We got to hold fast to our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Our high priest is Jesus the Son, the flesh, the begotten flesh of God, the image. Paul said to the church at Colossae, the image of the invisible God. Our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. Tonight, if the Lord will help me, and I'm going to need his help to get where I'm going, but I want to preach to you, for the sake of your remembrance, what Satan cannot do. What Satan cannot do. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for these sweet people that have gathered here under the sound of my voice and all that will hear the echo across the web and the internet. I pray in Jesus' name that you would bless your church. That your word would come alive to us. Let it come off the pages of this sacred book. And let it be living within us. Inscribe your word on the walls of our hearts and our minds tonight. I pray God that the good seed would find good soil. In Jesus mighty name. Let the church say amen. I wonder if you'd just help me tonight. Give the Lord a great big hand clap of praise. Would you do that? Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, mighty God. Mighty God. Kayondala masatayala mahai. Woo. Thank you, Lord. You may be seated. It's a part of the ministry of Jesus that we very seldomly teach um, it's not something that you hear preached a lot we know primarily if we hear a reference to Jesus being our high priest that it usually uh, the comments and thoughts are extrapolated from Hebrews the fourth chapter that he is our high priest that can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities he can feel he can feel us but there is a very very important thing that you need to understand about the nature of Jesus. Uh, I'm not here to just teach about the fact that he was a high priest, but I think it's important for us to understand the value of why he is our high priest. You know, it was in the law of God that a priest could not become king and a king could not become priest. It was totally separated. 
There was no man that was to be king and priest. As a matter of fact, without getting too deep and chasing after a rabbit hole, uh, we find kings that tried to fulfill priestly duties in the scripture whose lives were cut short because a king was trying to do priestly duties. It was not the will of God for that to transpire. But Jesus, I preach to you this morning, is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet he is also our high priest. He is the first legal representation in the earth that is able to fulfill both office of king and priest. The value of this is that in order to be a high priest, and again I'm going to stay in the shallow end of this if I can, but in order to be the high priest, he had to be flesh. So Jesus had to come in the form of flesh in order to redeem flesh. There was nothing spiritual about the high priest and the Levitical priesthood. They were fleshly in their nature and they did things in the flesh to connect this world with that world, if I could say that. Their job was to offer sacrifice in this world that would connect the people of God to that world. I feel that duty and obligation on a weekly basis as a priest of God to stand between the congregation of the righteous and God Almighty. I also feel that I must and that, that men who preach this blessed gospel must take it as seriously as did the high priest. That when they enter into the holy place and into the holy of holies, it is something sacred. I don't want to get stuck on this candy stick or soapbox, whatever you want to call it tonight. But I don't have any respect for the modern day priesthood that try to make the holy things of God less and less sacred. I really don't. I, I, don't, I don't believe that there was anything casual about what went on in that tabernacle and later in that temple. I don't believe there was one thing casual about what went on behind the flaps of that tent, that sacred dwelling place of God. As a matter of fact, we read in Scripture and we see it indicated some, and we also can find it in historical Hebrew record that these men took it so seriously that when they were to go into the presence of the Lord, that they actually were afraid that they would die and they would, they would put around the hem of their garment, bell and pomegranate. How many of you have ever read that? It would be a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate all the way around the bottom of uh, their garment so that when they went in that they were to dance. And Hebrew custom says that they would tie a rope around that priest so that if they stopped hearing the sound of the bell and the pomegranate that he was dancing before the Lord. Why is that? Because... You cannot be in his presence and not be changed. You can't be in his presence and not worship him. The only way they knew that he would have died is if he stopped making noise. Think about that. They said if we don't hear noise in there, he must be dead because you can't be somewhere that holy and not worship. And they would tie a rope around him and they would stand outside and they, they would say according to custom that 
If we stop hearing the clanging of the bell that he has died in the presence of the Lord. I wish that'd get a hold of the 21st century church. If we don't hear a noise, it's dead. Come on, I came to preach on Sunday night. I said, if you don't hear a noise in a church, it's dead. You might as well tie a rope around it and drag it out. It's dead. If you're in a holy church, there's going to be noise in it. And so that high priest, he, he, he had a lot of roles, but the primary role that we see in, in the 60,000 foot view, as Brother Stephen Gill likes to say, it's the 60,000 foot view, is that it was the job of the priest to get between the people and the Lord, and that he would make atonement for them, and that their sin would be pushed ahead for a year. Now in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse number 11, the scripture declares that every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. I love this language. The same sacrifices which can never take away sin. They will never take away sin. Even when the priesthood was established, it never took away sin. This is another way of saying it was never remitted. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Yet our high priest, Lord God. Verse 12 said, but this man. Somebody shout this man. This is the powerful language to Timothy. The, there is one mediator between God and man. The man. The flesh of Christ Jesus was the mediation as the high priest between the judgment of God on man. This man, after he had offered how many sacrifices? Somebody shout it. One sacrifice for sin forever sat down on the right hand of God. I love this scripture. If there's ever been power in understanding the word of God, it is right here. It said that this man, somebody say the flesh. After in his flesh, he made one offering the scripture said in the Greek that he sat down at dexios, the right hand of God. Some would say that this puts him literally and geographically on the right hand of the Father. But when John looked into the heavens, he only saw one throne and he that sat upon the throne. He said, I saw one on the throne. He said, I saw him. Not them, I saw him. Now this word dexios is so powerful because it does not mean geographically the right place. But if you look at the context of this word, it literally means 
a place of honor or authority. Everybody said Dexios. He sat down as a man at the place of authority in God. In other words, whoo, God. There is nobody else that has ever walked among us as a man that had the rightful ability to sit at the dexios of God. There's no other man that could sit in the throne of authority of God. When Jesus began to forgive sin, it frustrated the Pharisees. And they looked at him and they said, Who does this man think he is? As a matter of fact, they said, This man maketh himself God, trying to forgive people's sin. But where they missed it is that Jesus was not a man making himself God to forgive sin. Jesus was God who made himself a man to forgive sin. What are you saying, Pastor? It's a gospel message. He who was high came down low so that we who were low could come up. Is there anybody that's thankful for a God that breached the chasm that we could not cross? And when I couldn't get to him, he came to me. When he offered one sacrifice, it was done. How do you know? Because he said, it is finished. You know what finished means? It's done. And he sat down on his rightful place of authority on the throne. Because he never has to offer again. That blood is powerful enough that if it cleanses you one time, you will. Oh, you will never be the same again. But the Jewish people were struggling significantly with the idea and the thought this. This thought, because they knew the law that a king cannot be a priest, yet even on the cross was written, Jesus, king of the Jews. Jesus, king of the Jews. Somebody say king of the Jews. But how can he be the king of the Jews, yet be the offering of the high priest at the same time? It's so very interesting to me when people struggle with the nature of how he does things. And, and I can't stay here forever because we got uh, a long ways to go and a short time to get there. But I'm going to get you to where I'm going tonight. The value of understanding who God is is trying not to reason with human reasoning as to how he can do what he can do. The old ancient rabbis didn't know what I'm talking about all the way back to Abram. They did not know what to do with him because he would reveal himself in different places at different times in different manners. 
And they knew it was the same God, but when they came in Exodus, they said that he had one face at the Red Sea, and he had another face at Sinai, and they said, what would we do with this God that has more than one face? Now, I can't, I can't stay here, or I'm, I'm going to get stuck. I really am. I'm going to get stuck. But they didn't know what to do with how he would reveal himself in different, diverse manners. And so they began to struggle with what the ancient Hebrews, the old, old rabbis, I mean, I'm talking 4,000 years ago, came up with this thought process called the two powers in heaven. It was not dualism. It was not saying that there were two gods. It was saying that God was able to be omnipresent in the heavens, yet somehow, they couldn't figure it out, yet somehow could reveal himself at the same time in the earth. They had this crazy mindset, and I don't know where they get something like this, that God could actually be speaking through a burning bush and never stop being God everywhere else. Anybody picking up what I'm putting down right now? Well, I mean, you just, I mean, it was a bush. It, it wasn't God. No, no, no. Stay, stay with me. When the bush was burning and was not consumed, Abraham, he, or, uh, Moses, he said, well, who shall I say sent me? The bush speaking, the voice coming out of the bush, said, you tell him, I am. Well, there can only be one I am that I am. And for some crazy reason, the I am could be present in the bush but omnipresent in the world. And they wrestled with this. I, I, I did some research on this some time ago. And again, I, I can't stay on the rabbit trail. But I did some research some time ago. I was reading an old book. It was, it was really hard to find. It took me a while to track it down uh, on some ancient writing on the two powers in heaven. Please don't let that confuse you. It was not dualism. It was God being manifest in different ways at different times, yet never leaving the throne of heaven. And I, I was doing some research on this, and it was so powerful to me as I began to read this because I, I began to find historical records that after a season of time, about, uh, about 2,000 years or so of teaching about these two faces or two powers, the ability for God to reveal himself in different ways for approximately 2,000 years, give or take, somewhere in there. We're going to use this loosely because of time tonight. But they taught that God could reveal himself in the heavens and in the earth at the same time until, this is just historical record, approximately 3033 A.D., they began teaching that anyone who teaches two powers in heaven is teaching heresy because God will never reveal himself in the earth. Anybody want to guess why they started saying it was heresy around 33 AD? Because the high priest revealed himself in the earth as the image of the invisible God. And if they admitted that God had at quandary times revealed himself in the earth as a man, then he could do it in the flesh of Jesus. Can I tell you tonight that Jesus is the only God you will ever lay an eyeball on? 
Philip, Philip, Philip was dealing with it. You have to understand, these guys, from the time they were 13 years old, they were versed in the scripture. I mean, I, I, I wish I could tell you the depth of what really happened at Pentecost. The conversion at Pentecost was not a conversion to people living a holy lifestyle. They were already holy. These people that were converted at Pentecost were holy. They were, they were as far separated from the Roman way of thinking as they were the antithesis of the Roman Empire and what the Roman thought process was. They did not have to be converted to clean living. Their conversion was saying and admitting who Jesus was, taking on his name in baptism and being filled with his spirit. Their conversion was that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same spirit that now fills our hearts as a rushing mighty wind fills the upper room. You understand what I'm saying? These people were word people from the time they were 13 years old. They were to be under a rabbi following the yoke and the teaching of the rabbi. Philip had heard, I guarantee you that Philip had heard that God could manifest himself in different faces at different times because he was in the word. But he got frustrated with all the things that the religious people were saying to Jesus they didn't want to receive. And so he speaks up one day and he says, well, then show me the father and I'll be satisfied. Show me the father. And I wasn't there, but I have a feeling Jesus turned quickly and looked at him and said, excuse me? He said, how long have I been with you, Philip? And you have the audacity to say, show me the Father? He said, Philip, you know that when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I want to tell you that Jesus and the Father were not just one in unity. They were one absolutely. Jesus said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so they're wrestling. They're, they're, they're wrestling terribly with this idea. Because they're being told by one powerful group of people that if you really believe that God is going to manifest himself in the earth then you are a heretic folks I want to remind you that while the Romans were the ones that carried this out it was not the Romans that crucified Jesus it was the people that were struggling with the fact that he was God manifest in the flesh they, 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 they couldn't wrap their mind around that but during his trial, and I'm hurrying to get to where I'm going because time, time, time is ticking away. But as they were standing at the trial, there was such frustration in the book of Matthew chapter six, uh, 26, I'm sorry. In Matthew chapter 26, in verse number 65, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, he was question and ask if Jesus was the Christ and Jesus said to him it is as you have said but when Jesus said that 
The Bible said, he said, after, uh, after this, he said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Somebody say the right hand of power. Does that check with Dexios in Hebrews? The language here is so powerful. He said, you'll see the Son of Man, man, seated at the right hand of power. This man, after he offered once, sat at the right hand. Caiaphas knew what he was saying because the Bible said that when he said this, in verse 65, that Caiaphas, the high priest, rent his garments. But the Levitical order, and don't let me lose you here, snoring in Greek and dreaming in Hebrew, the Levitical order said that if the high priest were to rent his garments in front of the people, he was no longer under the authority of the high priest because he had made himself common by ripping his flesh. And the people who understood the law knew immediately that when Caiaphas rent his garment standing there that day, that he was no longer the high priest. They were looking, God have mercy. They were looking at the high priest, but it was not Caiaphas. And the writer of Hebrews had full understanding of this because he said this man, when he had offered sacrifice one time, sat down at the right hand of authority. I said all of this to help you understand that there is nothing that our God cannot do. I love it. I hear, I hear people saying it and praying it in our prayer room. I pray it all the time. I, 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 I'm not trying to sound like a creeper. I was listening tonight to people pray in the prayer room. I heard you say it, Brother Hensel. God, there's none above you. There's none besides you. You believe that, Brother Hensel? None above you. None beside you. You are God all by yourself. You are all powerful. You are all-knowing, God. You are omniscient. You know all. You see all. There's nothing hidden from you. Folks, I, I want you to understand, just because you're going through a hard time doesn't mean he don't see you. Woo, I'm, I'm trying to take you somewhere tonight. You may not see it happening in your world, but he's still got the power to do it. Just because I've lost my power in a situation doesn't mean he's lost any power at all. Pastor, it's out of my control. I can't fix it, but he's still in control. The thing that got him crucified was people realizing and understanding that he was God in the flesh and could do anything. As a matter of fact, they believed it so strongly while he was hanging on the cross. They said, if you're really him, then call on ten thousands of angels. And he could have. But he didn't because he was our redemption. And he could do anything. But he was a high priest. Somebody say a high priest. After the order of Melchizedek. No, we're not going into Melchizedek tonight. I'm not going to lose you. But I'm taking you somewhere. Lord, have mercy. This should have just been a six-week series to get where I'm going. 
He was absolutely positively king and priest. There was no question. Because he can do anything at any time, any season. Everybody believe that? You with me? But the voice that you always hear that's telling you he has power is truly coming from somebody who does not have the power. It's a voice that comes to you and says, you're done. It's over. It's gone too far. God can't fix this. It's a lost cause. Quit trying. Does that sound familiar? Why are you even going? Why would you get up and waste your time? You're a failure. You failed too many times. There's no redemption for you. It is the voice that wants you to believe that he has the power to manipulate your life. But I want to tell you that he, your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion. He's roaming to and fro seeking whom he may devour. The only thing he can devour is who gives him authority. Oh, God. My God can do anything, but there's some things that the devil cannot do. Now, can I bore you for just a minute? I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you somewhere. I, I, I told you 10 years. I went through and found my old notes, and I was 2014, so it was nine years ago. I started scribbling notes for this message nine years ago. Just something that came to me nine years ago in reading. And so we're going to put it on the platter tonight. If you eat, thank God. If you don't, you're going to be hungry. In Exodus, the 28th chapter, there were some things being put into order with the high priest. And again, I'm in fast forward mode. But I want to deal specifically with the breastplate of the ephod that was on the high priest. Can I do that tonight? Thank you for your permission. God bless your hearts. Exodus 28 and verse 17. If you don't have time to turn there, it'll be on your screen tonight. And so we're dealing directly with the ephod and the breastplate. In 28 and 17, it said of the breastplate, and thou shalt set in it settings of stones. Even four rows of stones. Now, there's a reason for this. If you're just reading fast, this will bore you to death. But don't you dare fall asleep on me tonight. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come get you. Come on, somebody. The first row. Somebody say the first row. Shall be a sardius, a topaz, a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. This is the kind of reading in your annual Bible reading when you're reading. You're like, oh, my word. Like, who cares? But it got to jumping out at me in 2014. I'm like. There's a reason this is the way that it is. The second row. Everybody say the second row. Are you bored yet? Shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row. A ligure and a gate and an amethyst. The fourth row. A beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. And they shall be set in gold in their enclosings. Okay. But he's not finished. He said, and the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, 12, according to their names. Lord, I feel the Holy Ghost. 
like the engravings of a signet. Everyone with his name shall they be according to the 12 tribes. So this high priest, he wore a breastplate that had 12 stones on it. And the 12 stones all represented a name of the tribes of Israel. Are you with me? 12 stones, 12 tribes. Oh, I'm going to take you somewhere. 12 stones, 12 tribes. Now, I got to reading through this one day. And then I got over in the book of Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. If you'll just keep from snoring right now, you're going to be shouting in just a minute. But I got to reading in Ezekiel, and I know Ezekiel's kind of out there, but God is speaking some things to Ezekiel, and he's showing some things in the 28th chapter and the 13th verse, and he starts describing this cherub that covereth, Satan, Lucifer. I'm going to take you somewhere. You know, he said, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. This is so crazy. Every precious stone was thy covering. Watch this now. We just read this about the high priest. But he said Lucifer was created with a breastplate. And on this breastplate, he said, Every precious stone was I covering. Follow it closely. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and the gold. Nine stones. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee. His pipes were in him. Folks, I, I don't know how else to break this down for you. I'm going to get this Gerber style as I can so you can understand this. This is a weird looking dude. Lucifer is the cherubim. He was the cherub that covered the throne of God. But he was walking manifestation of worship. He had a breastplate built in with nine stones and his pipes were in him. He was a walking instrument. He was a walking pipe organ. How stupid do you have to be to be a walking pipe organ created to glorify God and still glorify yourself? He was created to worship and couldn't get over himself he began to raise himself up in the presence of God for the things that God had created him to do. Man, I know this feels slow, but I'm taking you somewhere right now. Oh, my God, this is a crazy looking dude. He said, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. In verse 14, he said, I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways. I love this right here. It's the second time that this is mentioned. Verse 13 and verse 15. From the day that thou wast created. Somebody say he was created. We got this mental image at the beginning of time. That there's Satan and God. Fighting with each other. Like Spider-Man and whoever the mean one was. Like some superhero God that's 
Going to have to fight with this bad goon until the end of the story. Well, Hollywood's got that all jacked up for you. Because Satan is not God's co-equal counterpart. And it's not even a struggle. Because Lucifer was created by the master. <laughs> Lucifer is a created being. He is not God's equal. We're not going to get to the end and stand there and hold our breath and say, oh, I sure hope Jesus gets him. We're not going to stand there in eternity and, 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 and writhe our hands and say, oh, man, I sure hope this turns out in a good way. No, as a matter of fact, that same revelation I read you this morning, John said he saw the moment. Oh, God, I feel something pushing me right now. He said, I saw the moment when the accuser of the brethren was standing there and an angel came up and the Lord commanded that angel to take a great chain and to bind up the accuser. God have mercy. I've preached this many times through the years. But I can't hardly talk about it without getting excited. The, the, the scripture never says where the angel got the chain or where the Lord got the chain to give to the angel. But I'm going to tell you what I believe, and it's not doctrine. But I'll tell you what I believe where he got the chain. I believe that the chain is still growing because every time you get delivered by the blood of Jesus, there's a chain that falls off your feet and falls off your hands. And I believe it. I believe every time you get the victory over the enemy, that chain just keeps on growing and keeps on growing. And someday God's going to take the victories that you've won and he's going to tie him up. It's a great chain. He said that old angel's going to take that chain and he's going to bind him up. And then the Lord's going to look at the angel and give him the nod and he's going to cast him into the bottomless pit and he will never accuse you again. He will never have dominion over you again. He was created by God. He'll never be stronger than God. Woo! That'd be all right for an old Baptist nod right there. I said, he'll never be stronger than God. But when I got to studying this, I started noticing the language. And I, again, I'm going to bring you back down for just a minute. got to studying this, and, and I started putting some things together that the language... In Ezekiel, when speaking of the cherub that covereth Satan, and the language in Exodus, the 28th chapter, were so similar that Lucifer had built in him from the time of his creation a breastplate, and it begins to mention in the very same order the stones that were in the priesthood ephod. Are you following me? But as I began to count side by side, I noticed that in the priesthood, 
And this is just something you got to see. Maybe I was bored or something. But I started counting that there were 12 for the 12 tribes. But when I got to old Lucy fur, <laughs> there were only nine. And so I started writing this down, comparing this out. In Aaron's breastplate, we had the sardius and the topaz and the carbuncle, the emerald, the sapphire, the diamond, the ligure, the agate, the amethyst, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper. So we got this lined up. You can see this here. We got the 12 tribes written on the name there. We got the 12 tribes. But when I got to Lucifer, there were only nine. So like any good student would do, young people, Good students, take notes. Boy, an amen would have been good there. On Lucifer's breastplate, we got emerald, sapphire, uh, sardius, topaz, carbuncle in the first row. In the second row, we got emerald, sapphire, and diamond. In the third row, there's nothing. In the fourth row, what should be the fourth, but it's his third we got beryl, onyx, and jasper. As you can see, the cherub was only given nine stones as opposed to Aaron's 12 stones. And I'm like, there's something here. What am I missing? If in Aaron's breastplate, man, I hope y'all aren't bored because I'm going to take you somewhere. If in Aaron's breastplate, they all represented one of the 12 tribes, then if I start comparing all this and making sense out of it, I thought, surely I'm going to get in the scripture and I'm going to be able to find out every, what, what tribe every stone was. And the sad thing is, it's not there. So you're dismissed. Go home. God bless you. <laughs> Just kidding. The most common way that is held to that we can find this, it's disappointing that it doesn't just mention, but the, the most common understanding of the way this works is that the stones would have been laid, because God is a God of order, if you believe that, say amen. amen. That they would have been laid in the order in which each man was born. Makes sense. So we can see the first row is Reuben. So we got the ruby. The second is Simeon, the topaz. The third's Levi, the carbuncle. The fourth was Judah. The emerald, the fifth was Dan, the sapphire, the sixth was Naphtali, the diamond, the seventh was Gad, the Jastins or the Ligur, the eighth was Asher, the agate, the ninth was Issachar, the amethyst, the tenth was Zebulun, the barrel, the eleventh was Joseph, the onyx, and the twelfth was Benjamin, the jasper. Now the third row, follow me right here, don't, don't let me lose you right here. The third row gives you seven, eight, and nine. That makes sense? If the third row gives you seven, Eight and nine, you've got Gad, Asher, and Issachar, respectively speaking. Okay, you follow where I'm at? So, the cherub, Lucifer, was not given the stones of Gad, Asher, and Issachar. You with me? So this begs a question. Why were the stones omitted? He was created that way. He was created missing something. There was something about him that was, 
not whole. He was limited in his capacity from the start. I wish somebody would start believing that right now. He was limited when he was created. Woo! So now, we're just going to go to Genesis 49. We're going to go to Genesis 49 and verse 14. You guys are doing so good back there. Brother Tyler, thank you. I'm not going to scream at you. I'm not going to look at the wrong screen. Genesis 49, verse 14 and 15. It said, Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. Verse 15. And he saw that rest was good in the land that it was pleasant, bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant of tribute. Everybody say Issachar. Verse 19. He said, Gad, a troop. Oh, God have mercy. I I know where I'm going. Y'all don't yet. And I'm about to have a fit up here. He said, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Woo! Verse 20. He said, out of Asher, his bread shall be fat and he shall yield royal dainties. Asher means happy. He was the eighth son of Jacob. Eight represents new beginnings. I don't want to lose you right here. The word yield comes from the Hebrew word nathan, which means to give. Royal obviously means kingly. Dainty is also a Hebrew word which means soft or pleasant, which is the the perfect representation of our king. He is a powerful and pleasant royal seed. But if I could work you just like the Hebrew language from the right to the left, I'd like to begin tonight with Satan's first limitation. And I want to tell you that his first limitation is that he will never be able to produce a royal seed. Jesus was both king and priest because he is king of kings and he is Lord of lords I want to tell you that Satan will never be able to produce a royal seed that has the power to stand against our king there is no king like our king there is no rock like our rock Woo! the second would be Gad Gad's right in the middle it said, Gad, a troop shall overcome him. But somebody say it won't last. Gad, it's going to look like you're taking a whooping. He said, it's going to look like you've been overcome, son. As, as, as he's speaking prophecy over Gad, he said, it's going to look like you've been overcome. It's going to look like a troop has overcome you. But you, son, you are going to overcome at last. The thing that looked like it had overcome you. So what I want to say to you tonight is the second limitation that Satan needs to understand is he can only go so far because he's already defeated. And that was put in him at creation. I believe the Lord knew he would fall. I believe the Lord knew he had pride. And the Lord put it in him. He said it may look like you're overcoming for a while. But I've got a group of overcomers that are going to overcome you by the blood of the Lamb. 
and the word of their testimony. Satan, you need to know it's built into your DNA. I'm going to be the winner at the end of the day. I wish you'd believe what I'm telling you right now. The devil doesn't get the victory in the end. The devil is not the victor. You are the victor. You are the overcomer. God's got his hand on you. Devil, you need to know we're aware of it now. We know there's some things you cannot do. And something you cannot do is you may win a few battles along the way, but you will not win this war. If I could say it to you like this, I may have got knocked down a few times, but I'm getting back up. I may have failed God a few times, but thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in his name. I've got the power to get back up. Woo! I'm hurrying to a close. Last but not least was the tribe of Issachar. Issachar's unique because Issachar, he said about him, he was like a strong mule that was couching down between two burdens. What's that supposed to mean, Pastor? As the prophecy was coming over Issachar, he said, Son, you're going to be a burden bearer. Can I preach to you that it's built into Satan's limitations? That he was never meant to be my burden bearer? He is not the burden bearer. He is not the one that takes away my burdens. He is not the one that takes away my sin. Satan cannot bear my burden. He can only put more burden on me. But I've come to preach to somebody tonight. I know the burden bearer. He is the high priest that put that cross on his back and he walked with my burden up the cruel hill of Golgotha. And when they tried to take his life, they couldn't take it because he freely gave it. When they tried to get him to come down, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know if you know this or not, but I came to preach to you tonight. It's still finished. It's still finished. He bore my burden. Woo! I got to hurry. I got too much here, but I'm, I'm almost done. Matter of fact, music can prepare to come. Issachar was the ninth son of Jacob. My mother saw my notes in front of my Bible going through all these names the other day. The son, which whose was who. And 
he was the ninth son of Jacob. But he was the fifth son of Leah. Oh, Jesus. Nine is the number of strength. And five is the number of grace. Satan will never know what it feels like to provide strength when I'm too weak to stand up. But the apostle Paul started crying out to the high priest and he said, I asked him three times to remove this thorn out of my flesh. And when he didn't take the thorn, the high priest responded and said, my grace My grace is sufficient for you. Listen, every thorn that the enemy has tried to put on you, I want to know, I want you to know tonight there is strength and grace in this house, and it's not gonna come from your adversary. I know the burden bearer tonight. I know the load sharer tonight. He is a God of strength and a God of grace. I'm closing with this. I don't have time to get into the depths of this, but this is amazing. The two burdens is that Issachar sees that the land is pleasant, which I believe is representative of our inheritance, which is heaven. But the revelation that comes to Issachar is if you're going to get to the land... You're going to have to bear some burdens. Folks, I'm here tonight. I'm not here to like emotionalize you and just fill this room with chaos. I'm here to preach to somebody. I'm going to slow this down at this altar call because I've come to preach to somebody in this house. That it's easy to get excited about heaven. But I want to remind you that between here and there, we're going to have to carry some things. And God hasn't failed you just because the load gets heavy. I wish I could promise you. I wish I could promise you that you'll never have to carry the load again. But that's false doctrine. I wish I could tell you that life's just going to be gravy. And it's just going to be a bed of roses. But I can tell you this. It may look like a a bed of roses. But there's going to be some thorns in there. Brother Frank, we're going to have to carry some things, my brother. There's going to be some losses and there's going to be some some mourning. There's going to be some brokenness. There's going to be some heartache. Come on, somebody. There's going to be times that you're going to go through darkness. But the psalmist gave us revelation about our high priest. He said, when I am in darkness, the Lord will be, he will be my light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Oh, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we have the